Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, We actually have a special edition of Brussels Sprouts today. We've got two episodes that are focusing on China and Europe and how the United States and Europe can better coordinate and cooperate to address the China challenge. Um, And these episodes go along with their commemorating, um, accompanying the launch of a new CNAS and German Marshall Fund report that we just recently released called Charting a Transatlantic Course to Addressing China. And if our listeners haven't had a chance to check it out, please do. You can find it on the CNAS website. Um, And I think the whole premise of that report is that the United States and Europe need to work together. They need to chart a more coordinated and complementary approach to China. Um, And we also think that the time is right to do so. Um, And I I wanna note it's a collaborative project with Julie Smith, Chris Amici, and Ellison Lakowski. And we tried um, to delve into the issue to identify the common ground between the United States and Europe, the challenges to cooperation, and many of those are still present. Um, And really importantly, to lay out concrete recommendations for how uh, the two sides can move forward. And so today uh, we've invited fantastic experts on this topic to spend more time pulling these issues apart. Um, So I'm really excited to welcome both Melanie Hart and Yanko Ortel. So welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Um, Okay, just a quick background on both of our guests. Um, Melanie Hart is a senior fellow and director of China policy at the Center for American Progress. Her work focuses on developing a U.S. strategy towards China, assessing Chinese foreign policy, and tracking Chinese energy and technology sector activity. And Yanka is the director of the Asia program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And she has also spent years studying Europe-China relations and transatlantic approaches to the China challenge. So we couldn't have two better guests joining us today. Um, So maybe if we just kick off the conversation, Melanie, maybe I'll start with you and then Yanka, we'll let you kind of um, riff on the same question. I mean, the, the premise of our report really is that the time is ripe for more transatlantic cooperation on China. And Melanie, do you, do you agree with that? I mean, do you, are you seeing important changes in the relationship that lead you to believe that um, this issue has some legs and has the ability to, to gain traction? Are you optimistic, I guess, is the question about uh, greater cooperation between the United States and Europe moving forward? Absolutely. You know, thanks for the question. And I look forward to receiving, re- reading the new report that you guys just put out. Um, you know, I just, uh, I just ended another call in which I heard a German counterpart say that in the first meeting between Angela Merkel and Donald Trump, President Merkel said to him, let's try to do something together on China. And so that suggests to me that this opportunity isn't so new. You know, maybe some of what makes this opportunity new is on the U.S. side. Maybe it's been there longer than we as Americans recognize. Um, I will say that I I started going to Europe to talk about China in 2018, which was ridiculously late. Once I did so, I realized it was completely um, uh, ludicrous that I had never before gone to Europe and sat down with a bunch of European counterparts to trade notes on what we're seeing in China and how we think our nations nations should respond. But I made a lot of European trips from over 2019, 20. 
2019 and the early 2020 before we were shut down. And I have seen that Europe appears to be undergoing a kind of um, awakening up on the, the, some of the challenges involved in China's intentions and China's actions and the fact that, um, it's, that we, we might need to, there might be some issues where China is, I think as the Europeans put it, not necessarily a partner, but more of a competitor or a challenger or maybe even an adversary. And there's definitely uh, that awakening probably adds more agenda items to the scale and what the U.S. and Europe should do together. But I think also as Americans, there's a um, there's a knee-jerk tendency among Washingtonians to say, well, the Europeans are finally getting it. They're finally waking up and seeing China for what China is. But I would encourage a much, much more nuanced approach. We have a lot to learn from Europe because China is a complex challenge. There are elements of adversary, there are elements of competition, and there are opportunities for partnership. And over the past four years, while the U.S. has gone down a relatively, I would say, non-productive, narrow-focused, crazy approach, Europe has been doing a lot of work to try to figure out how to balance those different conflicting pieces of the puzzle. Europe stayed in the Iran agreement with China. Europe continued trying to hold, hold the pieces of the Paris agreement together, keep the Chinese at the table and figure out how to work collaboratively on those issues. So there are definitely areas where I think maybe Americans have something to share with Europeans on what we're seeing on the adversary side. We have areas where we need to learn from the Europeans for how we can work with China as a partner in those other issues. And I think we have big opportunities and the it needs to go both ways in terms of the learning and the leadership. Yeah, those are, are fantastic points. And Yanka, maybe like just to hear your perspective too on the same question about what sense you're getting in Europe? Are you feeling that there's a shift towards greater urgency to taking on this challenge? I mean, the other thing we hear in the United States too is that you know there certainly have been a lot of positive steps on um, you know investment screening and other things. There's been some really concrete positive steps, but it's been kind of primarily in the economic realm and that there's been a reticence to see China more in geopolitical terms and as a geopolitical threat. Would you say that's changing? Um, can, what, what, are, what, what are you picking up on? What's happening on, on that side of the Atlantic, would you say? Thank you for the question. And I think that's it really, uh, Melanie hit the nail on the head by saying that nuance is probably the most important word that we need for this conversation. Because what is happening in Europe at the moment is really hard to nail down uh, in, at, at every single moment because it's changing so rapidly. And I have never experienced that before with an issue area across Europe that you have a conversation and two months later, a country, an entire country has changed their entire position on the issue and it flipped 180 degrees. And I think that's something that we haven't witnessed on any other issue so far. And that's what makes it incredibly challenging to watch at the moment, but also incredibly fascinating to analyze. So I think what's, what's really interesting to see is that if you blink and you didn't look for two months or three months um, and you're on the other side of the Atlantic, then maybe the situation in Slovakia or in the Czech Republic looks entirely different. 
And so I think, um, I think we have to be really careful in making kind of broad assumptions now. So we can't say the, any of these neatly boxed things anymore, like Southern Europe is in this kind of situation and Eastern Europe is in that kind of place. And the Central Europeans have discussed, and even you can't even say the Franco-German alliance is in this or that position on China at the moment. It's very nuanced, it's very much dependent on issue areas. And it is, um, but it is very interesting that it's moving in the same direction. So all across Europe, from north to south, east to west, um, skepticism vis-a-vis -vis China is growing. Um, from all over the place, um, there is a greater urgency of the threat. And that has a lot to do with also the deterioration in the transatlantic relationship, obviously, but also has a lot to do with the fact that China has just been a lot more assertive and that the corona crisis has brought the issue home. Um, the coronavirus situation has really kind of put the China topic on the top of the agenda in every single member state that quite frankly, especially in the smaller member states, has a very limited interaction with China. And I think that's an, in, in, an important kind of element to this. The urgency has been brought about by a combination of factors that is quite unique. Um, and that is not just due to one or the other issue. So it's not just due to transatlantic pressure. It's not just due to China's human rights violations. It's kind of the mix of it all that has made this different. And I think that's what's the, the fascinating part about the conversation and that the conversation is moving so rapidly um, that it's even hard sometimes for the vocabulary to keep up. So we had this conversation in 2019 about you know, the rival, the partner, the competitor. That's almost outdated now. Because the partnership term is really a difficult one. If you want to look in that box and you want to find something that's in that box, it's very empty. It's really hard to say what is a real partnership issue at the moment. Cooperation, yes. Coordination, definitely. But partnership, that's something more. So I think we're at the moment, we're in that kind of a reinvention of even this um, holy trinity that I've been calling it for so far of the, of the rival partner competitor, where it's a you know, it's competition and cooperation on the basis of systemic rivalry. And I think that's where we are at the moment um, in the European debate. Well, thank you. I, those were both great uh, presentations. I, uh, it is amazing to watch this happen. But let me ask you, as you've talked to uh, other Europeans, uh, um, Janka, you, 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 but um, you mentioned this and um, I think it's something that uh, I have seen as well talking to Europeans you know, across Europe, there is this turning, but I think in terms of Central and Eastern Europe, as you've talked to Poles or Romanians or Balts, um, do, are they afraid that if um, suddenly the US uh, and Europe begin to focus more on China than Russia, that they will be left uh, a bit more insecure, that in a sense, this is a pivot to Asia, taking along a lot of European countries with us as we focus. And so uh, it's zero sum in the eyes of people in Warsaw or elsewhere where suddenly Russia is not uh, the preeminent threat anymore. Russia isn't the focus. And they feel that it's going to come at their own security expense that, uh, that a transatlantic focus begins to prioritize China. Did you ever see that? Well, there's certainly some of that. In the 5G conversation, that was definitely an issue where it wasn't as relevant to talk about China as a threat, but where it was kind of pleasing the US and going with the US demands and wishes in some of the Eastern European states. But I think what we have to be clear about is that this is not just a dependent kind of variable here. These countries have agency and they have interests. And in, in Poland, there was a lot of enthusiasm initially for the Belt and Road Initiative. There was this idea that there would, you know, 
a lot of transit would go through Poland, a lot of investments would come. And there's just a lot of frustration and promise fatigue when it comes to dealing with China. There's disappointment in the economic relationship that has just really not paid off. And for the, for the Baltic states, for example, the acts that China has been undertaking, especially with regard to Hong Kong, for example, um, in countries that have an experience of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, their freedom and being occupied is not something that they would like to discuss and where that they would like to put up for discussion. Um, that in, in countries like Lithuania, you have a strong opposition um, against moves in Hong Kong or in Taiwan. Um, so I think there is a lot of like real agency when it comes to that. And as I said, I think the coronavirus crisis has brought it home in a different level. It yeah. has demonstrated the kind of disruptions of supply chains and what that would do. And it also puts home some of the, brings home some of the potential um, advantages. Because when we're talking about kind of restructuring of supply chains, Eastern Europe does have some opportunities there. So I think it, it again is a big mix, but obviously there is a transatlantic component to that that is not, especially in the security related questions, it should not be overlooked. Yeah. So in the report, we could look across different domains of the relationship, technology, defense, democracy, human rights, investment and trade. Um, and Melanie, I wanted, I know you've done some work on the technology side in particular. And just wonder, um, kind of wanna, in the report, I think we highlight a number of challenges that China is posing in the technology domain in particular, the way that they're using market distorting subsidies, um, their own protectionism, the way that, you know, forced technology transfers and things like that. And in a way, so they're able, they're ha China has increasingly looked to Europe to enhance its own ability to innovate. And then that ob has obvious implications for U.S., uh, military advantages in particular. Um, so I just, as someone who has paid so much, so, spent so much time kind of watching the China challenge, can you help us situate the Europe piece? Why is it important that the United States and Europe are working together to kind of close some of these gaps and loopholes um, in order to address the China challenge? Like when you look at it from the US perspective, what, why is Europe uh, in particular important in the technology space? Sure, so there's really um, three pieces to it. Uh, everything runs through Europe these days when we're thinking about China's strategy. So um, the first piece is standards. A lot of the challenges that we're facing in the technology domain, they're not necessarily China challenges. It's just that China is making them urgent because technological developments have brought about some really big governance questions that haven't been answered yet. And China is pushing, trying to pushing the world toward an approach that would be problematic for democracies. So on things like, um, you know, um, data privacy, on surveillance, on, you know, what, what a government should be allowed to do when it comes to surveilling its citizens and, uh, you know, controlling data, controlling information. These are a lot of questions that haven't been answered and China's rise and push for a China approach makes it urgent for us to answer them. And in the United States, so I first um, started working on technology policy over 10 years ago. And at that time, there was such a big divide between the U.S. and Europe because Europe cared a lot about data privacy and the U.S. was committed to a completely hands-off regulatory approach. Now, Americans have seen that that doesn't work. Now, 
Who would have thought 10 years ago that today you would have Republicans filing anti-monopoly suits against Google? This is a, a sea change. Americans have seen what happens when you have a complete Wild West and Russia is able to enter our social networks, sow disinformation and disrupt a US election. Our, the vulnerabilities and downsides of that approach have been shown and Americans are voicing a desire for something else, something that recognizes that some kind of regulation and guidance and governance is needed to protect what we hold dear and guess who's out in front on doing that? It's Europe. You know, I when I travel to Europe, you know, it's amazing that I get to, you know, I get to click a button to decide how much of my data I want to share with the website. And, you know, the world didn't end when Europe rolled out some of these approaches. So on governance, that's a whole bucket of issues that I think the U.S. is really playing catch up on. And a lot of people are looking to Europe as a model. And the great thing is that creates a whole new opportunity for cooperation that just wasn't there 10 years ago when we were moving in different directions. The second piece of it is um, recognizing that, the second and third piece is recognizing that Beijing, China has an approach to governance within its own economy that locks out some of the freedom of information and exchange that is critical for innovation and real technical strength. This is an area where the US and Europe excel. And to compete with us, Beijing is seeking to uh, tilt global markets, distort what we're doing, and buy some of what we're creating so that they can compete with us and succeed, even though these are areas of our superiority. And so that comes out in two different ways. First, we see China we see Beijing giving Chinese companies access to literally hundreds of billions of dollars to enter the United States and Europe and acquire the crown jewels of our technology innovation and bring it back to China. And if all of that were entirely transparent and open, it would be one thing. But unfortunately, a lot of that flows through shell companies so that the firms in the United States and Europe, when they're selling something to the Chinese state, they don't necessarily know that they're doing that. Um, and we need, we, we, we share a common challenge in figuring out how to block that predatory technology acquisition when it's done either secretly through shell companies and or with government cash uh, masquerading as a commercial deal. We need a common approach to how to screen for that and block that in a way that doesn't shut down our open investment and commercial systems. And third and finally, you know, the other piece of Beijing's approach for competing against us when we have a natural advantage over them is the way they deploy credit and regulatory policy to distort markets in ways that favor Chinese companies over foreign competition. Huawei is my favorite example. You know, the Chinese state gives them billions of dollars in state bank credit. They give them loans to, they give loan, state bank loans to anyone around the world who will buy Huawei equipment. They give Huawei guaranteed access to the Chinese market um, so that they have a big economies of scale for when they're selling overseas. There are just endless ways in which Beijing uses regulatory policy and cash to tilt global markets in, in favor of Chinese companies so they can push our companies out of business. And that's another area where the US and Europe really have common interests and where we could really need to band together to figure out 
what are the new rules that need to be adopted so that we can disincentivize or disallow those kinds of policies in ways that don't undermine, again, the openness and the competition and the innovation that we hold dear. And I think that's something that the U.S. hasn't figured out domestically how to do. And it's a perfect opportunity to not go into our own rabbit hole and do it alone, but rather recognize those common interests with Europe and do something jointly. Well, that's that is uh, that was is fabulous. Very well stated. Very clear. And and uh, you know, as we look at partnering with Europe, um, one thing that I a couple of things jumped to mind. One is something that we've talked about, uh, Andrea and Chris and myself, Jeff, about uh, also working with uh, Asian allies. We talk about Europe, but there's also uh, those nations in Asia, whether it's South Korea or Australia, New Zealand, that that, that also need to have um, a partnership as well. And but but let's stay with Europe. You know, um, there's going to be a lot of pressure on a new administration um, to to get NATO to do more vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, and that's a it's easy to say. Uh, and on the surface, that seems like it makes a lot of sense. But when you if you're at NATO headquarters and you're on the international staff and you're trying to figure out, so what does this look like? <laughs> because you know, uh, yeah, NATO can play a role, but it's not exactly the same one that played during the Cold War or even now vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, it's something else. Um, have have you all thought about that? And and what do you think? Uh, you would advise a new administration uh, to suggest at NATO that NATO do about uh, you know joining in partnership uh, to handle China. Maybe I can uh, jump in here. So I think there are two areas in which it makes a lot of sense for NATO to at least play a role in the conversation. That is cybersecurity, and that's kind of China-Russia military cooperation. Um, I think these two areas, if you kind of slice them off and say, these are areas in which we are going to just focus on what's going on, because they have a significant effect on um, kind of the, the security situation in Europe. Um, they are of sufficient interest to the United States. Um, and cyber doesn't know any kind of boundaries. Um, so the cybersecurity question is one where Europe definitely needs support as well. Um, and it's one of the areas in which a EU, UK, US cooperation within the NATO framework would be very, very beneficial because the cyber situation in Europe with the Brits out um, is definitely a different one than it was before with the Brits in. So I do think that that's a very promising area for um, good information exchange for um, kind of devising strategies for thinking about what to do. And the second area, China-Russia military cooperation is just a monitoring aspect to this as well. Um, information exchange on what is going on and what Europe needs to be prepared for. I do think that the fact that Chinese ships are sailing in the Mediterranean and in the Baltic Sea with increasing ease, the fact that China has become, just has moved closer uh, to NATO territory is just one thing that, you know, the, that uh, the countries need to be aware of um, and that, it is going to be difficult for Europeans in the alliance to just make this completely about China. I don't think that's going to happen. And you see the reluctance of European partners, especially in France, for actually making China a topic on the NATO agenda. Um, but I do think that there are limited areas in which it can make sense, um, especially with the new administration in the United States. I do think that kind of building up on what Melanie has just said, um, I do think that we do have a little obstacle um, in the way for uh, real transatlantic cooperation on these issues, and especially in the technology realm, 
um, that is going to be you know, decided about in November. Um, but I think everything hinges upon um, an election outcome that allows for new momentum um, in the relationship. And then I do think there are a number of opportunities, as Melanie has pointed out, um, for transatlantic cooperation, but it could become a lot more difficult if the results are different. I definitely want to pick up on what that relationship could look like after November 4th. Um, I think that's an important thing and how you want to hear how you're thinking about the role that China will play in a future transatlantic relationship. But before we do that, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time also talking about the democracy and human rights issue. Melanie, you kind of touched on that. It's, you know, it, it overlaps in a, in a significant way with the technology piece as we're thinking in, in particular about digital authoritarianism and the way that China is increasingly using technology to enhance its control over its own citizens and then in turn exporting some of these technologies to other countries who are looking to do the same. Um, so Melanie, just to hear a little bit about from you, like how do you, how do you think about the democracy challenge that's stemming from China? And again, just getting back to that question, if you just say a little bit about why you think it's important that the United States and Europe are teamed up on it. I know, I know it seems obvious, like if we're pooling influence and we can collectively push back, but I don't know if there are some particular issues or um, institutions that you would highlight where transatlantic cooperation is especially important to push back on the challenges that China is creating in the democracy and human rights realm. Sure. So I'll give you um, a concrete example in the technical space and then some broader ones. You know, um, a, a small concrete technical example. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with some civil society activists from Africa where they made the point, um, you know, under the Trump administration, the United States is making everything China about a binary choice. You know, you either you're going to buy Huawei or you're not, or you're not, and we're you know you're either on the side of good and good and democracy, I guess, or 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 the wrong side. Um, and one thing that they told us, one one point that they made is that our governments are not going to say no to the digital infrastructure projects. They're not going to say no to the Chinese cash. So can you still help us? You know, how can you help us? You know, they said. If the government says yes to Chinese cash and projects, where are the global governance standards to apply to those projects so that we can still hold our government and the Chinese accountable to the impacts and accountable for how those projects are run and how they impact very concrete things like freedom of speech um, and the ability to organize and the ability to, you know, maintain um, individual legal protections uh, when they're trying to carry out those rights. We need not just the Trump administration has been very narrowly focused on just say no to Huawei and everything's fine. But actually what I'm hearing is a real global call for a much broader answers to some of these technology questions and governance questions that other countries can sign on to because it's not forcing them to pick US versus China on one particular technology question, but create a democracy approach to some of these broader technology governance issues that nations around the world can sign on to and use to protect their democratic systems, even while saying yes to China and partnering deeply with China on other issues. 
that's not something the U.S. can do unilaterally. That's something that requires all of the democracies around the world to really band together. And again, because Europe has been in the forefront on technology governance, I don't think we can do it without Europe. You know, I think Europe really needs to be not just at the table, but playing a leadership role. We need Europe for this. And I think I'm hearing the call and the demand and cry from developing countries to put that on the table and offer that, a kind of democratic um, counterbalance to what China's offering. And in the broader human rights space, you know, the Trump administration has been a perfect example of how not to respond to Chinese human rights abuses. When you respond, making it very unilateral, very, um, when you wrap your response to Chinese human rights abuses in a blanket of US-China Cold War competition, then it's very easy for Beijing to just say, well, the United States is just trying to contain us. The United States just wants to bring our regime down. Um, they can very flippantly disregard that kind of criticism from the United States, and it imposes zero costs on China domestically and probably very few costs on China globally. Um, Hong Kong is a perfect example. Xinjiang is a perfect example. Um, on the other hand, where we have seen Beijing sit up and take notice and where we have seen um, rights defenders succeed in really imposing costs on Chinese actions is when the global community rises up and says, that is not okay. You know, that is a clear violation of human rights. We see what we're doing and we rate you as not acceptable to the standards of what it means to be a true global leader and a responsible player in 2020. When you send that message, Beijing takes notice. That is why Xi Jinping put so much effort into standing up at UNGA, standing up at Davos, and talking about how China is a great nation, it's a responsible power, they care about human rights, they care about democracy. He uses these words because he, they, he deeply wants and needs the global system to rate China highly and not impose costs or barriers on what China is doing. The way to do what he's trying to avoid and to impose those costs is to have a multilateral response. And again, you know, I think this is an issue on human rights. Europe rarely holds back. You know, on human rights, that's something, you know, that polling and public statements consistently show Europeans care about. And so, again, you know, that's just an opportunity for the United States and Europe and other allies, as you mentioned, to, to form a really strong multilateral voice. And by doing so, create a safe space for other nations to join us. Because when the United States criticizes China in Cold War rhetoric, the South Koreas of the world, the African nations, South American nations, the Eastern Europeans, they don't, it's too costly to pick a side. But the bigger tent that we can create and the more that we can make that about, about values and standards, then the bigger coalition we can form and the more we can create real costs and uh, boundaries on Beijing's behavior. Yanka, I wanna, yeah, just to turn, I would love, wanna hear kind of your reaction to what Melanie just said. Um, you know, she laid out this idea that we need a democratic counterbalance to what China is offering 
Um, how much do you think that resonates in Europe? Um, because there are some instances where, um, well, clearly China under has understood that it wants to keep Europe from aligning firmly and squarely with the United States. And as Melanie said, in Unga and other places, Beijing has gone out of its way to try to frame and portray itself as a responsible global actor, you know, pointing out climate change and JCPOA and other things that Beijing has really tried to say, no, no, it's actually the United States that's not the global responsible global actor, it's us. Um, so how much, how important do you think the democracy and human rights set of issues is in this China question for Europe? Um, because, you, you know, people will point at Hungary or other countries that have been, uh, Greece even, reticent to criticize or call out China's human rights abuses because countries have felt that doing so would jeopardize some of the economic uh, benefits of partnership with China. So do you, do you get the sense that that's moving or are countries still pretty reticent to call China out because they don't want to jeopardize those economic relationships? important to underline that the economic relationship for most European countries when it comes to China is not super crucial. The only one country that has a really crucial relationship with China is Germany. And Germany has not been very reticent to call out um, Chinese human rights violations, has actually been under uh, Chancellor Merkel, one of the few players that has pushed especially on individual cases, quite significantly, um, where uh, Berlin has been a place for um, kind of, uh, dissidents to move to, um, where it has become a real vocal actor and taking up some of that role that um, the US used to play in, in some of these instances as well. So I think that's really important to underline. Um, I would agree with Melanie that, um, you know, this is, there is a, it, we need to have a positive agenda as well, an answer to the world. We have been also in Europe from a Brussels end focused a bit on the technical defensive side of things, focusing on FDI screening, focusing on you know, foreign subsidies. These are matters that bureaucracies can deal with because they have the size of a bureaucracy. You know, you can, this is, it's, a, it's an issue that you can kind of slice and partition and you can deal with. What we need is a broader, bigger answer um, where it is about you know, the, the, the whole connectivity question, the question of answering positively, providing um, investment opportunities, providing a positive narrative of actually it makes sense to do business with Europe because it's not only morally or you know in terms of standards and rules a great thing to do because it pays off. I think we need to make it attractive. We need to make it uh, interesting to partner with Europe and with the United States. So I think kind of intersecting our respective connectivity initiatives that we have would be a really, really good start for that because it makes an offer to the developing world, but it also makes an offer to um, kind of the kind of connecting um, the, the, the middle of the in-between. And you see that happening. I mean, you see the calls for diversification of economic relationships, even in Germany when it comes to Asia, but also when it comes to North Africa and even Latin America. So these conversations are already ongoing uh, and they have a heavy economic dimension to it, but obviously the values and standards question is really significant in it as well. And I, I think that we have to kind of be careful um, not to, um, to undersell the attractiveness of doing business with us as well and not make it about virtue and moral all the time, but making it about something that is actually, you know, kind of happening um, and where we can actually put money on the table. And so far, I must say, it's a bit disappointing what Europe has to offer. Um, in the multiannual financial framework, we don't see 
the big kind of change to the way we do foreign policy, connecting development, developing, uh, development aid and foreign policy in a way that actually gives us heft, that gives us weight, because in terms of money, we could totally do it. The money is there. It's just a question of how to allocate it strategically. Um, and I don't see that happening yet, but I do see the pressures for that mounting. Let me ask a question. I, I think you all, you both have just done an outstanding job laying out the case for working together in, in, in various uh, in various ways, various angles. How, how do you operationalize partnership with Europe? I mean, I can do that if it's national security oriented because you go to NATO. I know how to do that. Um, and I know certainly dealing with the European Union, there's we can deal with the EU as well. It's more difficult there. But uh, something as large and as complex as this that covers so many things to really partner with Europe um, and, 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 and this and to, to, to deal with China that is so involved in so many areas. How do you do that? I mean, how do you call a, um, a transatlantic conference on China and we all meet in Paris uh, a bit around a big table? Looks like the Versailles Treaty negotiations and we elect somebody who's going to run it. And, and I mean, how do you do it? How do you actually operationalize it? Who calls the meeting? Who shows up? And, and do you do just a little bit of it? Uh, and then, you know, it's like uh, eating a big meal, you know, one forkful at a time. Or do you try to do something big and broad with principles? I mean, you know, and, and who's invited? Uh, is Russia as part of this? And we, because it's, you know, it's Europe and the United States, Russia. I mean, how do you do this? And if, can I layer on, because we are kind of coming to the end, and I, I really wanted to get this question in too, which is gets back to Yanka's point about who wins in November is going to really matter. And let's assume it's a Biden administration, and Joe Biden and his administration show up in Europe, you know, shortly after the election and says, hey, guys, you know, we're ready to work. We're ready to get, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and get down to business. Um, is you know, how, how much of an issue does Europe want China to be? How much of a focus will this China issue be under a Biden administration? Or are there other things, climate, JCPOA, trade issues, um, that Europe is going to be more keen to talk about first? Where, Yanka, do you think that this China issue uh, weighs in the overall relationship? And then to Jim's point, it, you know, how do, how do we get it done? significant factor in a post-election kind of transatlantic relationship. But I think Europeans will be very careful about making it the biggest issue on the table. Um, and I think also, Jim, when you talk about this kind of, I can already picture the Paris meeting that you were kind of drawing up there. I think that's the last thing the Europeans want. You know, that big showing of transatlantic unity in alliance against China. I don't think that's the way Europeans want to operate at the moment. But the idea that was put on the table about a high-level conversation between EU leaders and, uh, and US in terms of a dialogue on China is something that is definitely already being talked about, already being discussed, and something that is definitely going to you know, get uh, have more speed or be, be up to speed more um, under a different administration. I think that would, that would be a lot of potential there. Um, I think it is wise to keep it at the EU level. Um, because for Europe, the key questions are going to be the trade questions, and the trade questions are going to be discussed in Brussels, so that makes a lot of sense. And then to have a number of smaller formats. And as I said, I think the, the, the China issue is not an issue anymore that you can compartmentalize into a little box that is the China box that you then discuss. 
it is part of every single conversation that we're going to have with the United States. It's part of security conversations, it's part of economic conversations, it's part of the question, how do you deal with you know, global migration flows, climate change, etc. So I think um, we just need to have a lot of wise people around the table that have a lot of China knowledge in, every of, in each and every of these areas um, that we need to discuss in the future. Um, and it just make it an inherent part of our discussion. In a way, um, we have done that with other issue areas, Russia or the Middle East, where it's kind of natural to talk to the US, the US and Europe to talk to each other all the time about these issues. China has to just be part of that conversation. And it's bigger and it's more important and it cuts more through more of these areas. So I think that's the, it will not be that one big show of force, but I think it's the, you know, the transatlantic unity on these questions across the entire board is very scary to Beijing. So I think achieving some of that um, is very useful also in terms of a deterrent that it creates. So, so no meeting at Versailles in the Hall of Mirrors, something remnant. That's a great idea, no, <laughs> fortunately. Oh, uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. Um, I thank both of you. You guys have made so many crucial points. Um, and again, you, you have both, I think, just laid out all of the reasons why more coordination is critical and it doesn't have to be identical doing the same things at the same time, but more complementary approaches to China is the only way to really make progress on so many of these issues. That's a key point in the report that we've just put out. So again, just a final plug for people, if you're interested in this conversation, we've got a lot more in that report as well. But Yanka and Melanie, thanks so much for joining us um, and we hope we get to do it again. Thank you.